welcome everybody, and welcome especially to Zainab to Fetchy. Uh, Zainab has been a long-term Berkman Fellow and now faculty associate. She is also a fellow at the Princeton Center for Information Technology Policy, as well as a faculty member at the University of North Carolina. Um, she's here to talk to us about all her fabulous work around um, surveillance and social media. Welcome, Zainab. All right. Hi, everyone. Let me just sort of... Everything is taller than me. Usually it's platforms, you know, and podiums, but even my laptop, I'm just going to keep it here so I can talk a little better. So uh, my name is Zeynep Tufekci, and two of my biggest topics are surveillance and privacy and social media and Internet. So imagine how pulled I felt when NSA revelations in PRISM and Gezi protests in Turkey, where I'm originally from, broke the same week. I thought, this cannot be happening at the same time. Which one do I pay attention to? What do I do? Uh, I ended up uh, doing a lot more Gezi-related work. I had already done research on social media and movements uh, in the Arab Spring. You know, I'd been to Egypt. I have published uh, on these topics. Uh, so when something like that started happening in my own country, I felt like I can't really just watch this and not do research. Fortunately for me, I had world's best IRB. Uh, they approved my you know, study really fast. Uh, we just worked on it very fast. It might have helped that I cried on the phone uh, <laughs> to let me do it. Uh, because usually we can't, it's very hard to study you know, erupting protests. How are you supposed to have applied a month in advance if I knew? Right, so. Um, I, this is a sort of, there's a lot in my talk that I'm just working through, and I will post my slides online. I will post them at, uh, but, so there's a lot of, um, things I'm thinking through. And I want to actually, Gezi for me, analytically, uh, was incredibly useful because all the other ones that I studied, had happened in, um, well, we had too few cases. We had the Arab Spring, and we had uh, Occupy and M15 in Indignados in Spain. So those are kind of few cases. But Gezi was, for me, analytically very important. One, because it was my home country where I knew the politics inside out. Two, it was really different from anything that had happened before in country. So it both as a cross-comparison and as an in-between comparison, it was very useful. So I'm going to use Gezi to suggest changing some of the ways we analyze social media and movements. So far, we emphasize on the good side, we say lower coordination costs, attention and publicity, you can shape the narrative, you can overcome pluralistic ignorance, which is the idea that if everybody has an internal private idea that they're not sharing, social media can help create a cascade when some people start sharing. And to criticize, we say slacktivism, it's too easy, surveillance, and we say censorship and propaganda. I would like to argue that lower coordination costs are probably the biggest problem with social media's boom and bust cycle, that social media fueled protests. I'm going to argue that the lower coordination costs are coming with significant handicaps. And I'm going to argue uh, that if we look through a capacity building approach, sort of the development economics that was developed, started with Amartya Sen and others instead of outputs, and look at what are the capacities social media is building at the expense of others. I think that will help better explain why we keep seeing these huge eruptions of movements without necessarily the same kind of impact you would have had had the movements been 
measured by the same things we like to look at compared to the previous months. Like we look at March on Washington, we look at civil rights movement, you know, and we say, look, it had this impact. So the question is, why don't these movements that have such large numbers in the streets seem to go fizzle out most of the time? And why does it differ on the left and right? There are many questions here. So what I'm going to do is um, these are very big questions for movements. So while I'm going to uh, focus on the Internet angle, you know, there is the free rider problem. Why do people protest at all? What do resources matter? Uh, what, do protests matter? Political opportunity structures, political mediation. These are big theories in social movement uh, theory. And I'm going to argue that these big questions need to be understood in light of what we know of how Internet is impacting them. So usually people argue, does it, does it count if it's not about the streets or was it about Twitter or Skype or the people? I'm not going to argue any of these. I think these are the wrong questions. So my proposal is stop looking at outputs of social media protests, protest size, how much attention. Stop looking at the pro outputs as much and start looking at their capacity building to explain their sort of cycle. And also stop using online, offline as the axis of analysis. Very often we look at, you know, did it start online, offline, where did it spread? I think that's not conceptually helpful. Uh, look at protests as signaling. So after all that word, 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 let's talk about what happened in Gezi. So I'm going to sort of give you a little history of what happened in Gezi and then uh, tie it back to my analysis. So once upon a time, there was this. This is Gezi Park in Taksim. So if you saw this on television, the TVs were constantly on the square, Taksim Square, which is in front of Gezi. That's not where the action was. It was this park. So this park is kind of a lonely bit of green. This is sort of an overview of uh, Istanbul. Now, it's a lovely city. I really recommend you go. Uh, and, you know, it, it, I, I, people ask me, is it safe? I think traffic is the biggest problem, not tear gas um, and you know you get used to it <laughs> uh, so it, it, it's this little bit of green in this really overable Istanbul is wonderful and historic and you know a couple of empires have come and gone and lots of interesting history but it means lots of people have built and built and built so when they wanted to take that park and make it into this and this was supposed to be an Ottoman era barrack replica that had once stood there that they were going to rebuild. So they were going to rebuild old Ottoman era barracks. Except, of course, well, who the heck needs barracks in the middle of countries, you know, who would who'd want barracks in Times Square, right? It's like prime real estate. So they were going to make it into um, expensive housing, like residences they're called, uh, where like hotel-like housing and expensive hotels and a shopping mall. Now, this is a very lively, vibrant area. So building a shopping mall in the one little left park and turning Taksim, a very lively place, into this wasn't very popular. I don't even think it was very popular among um, the government supporters. And it was more of this vision of our prime minister, uh, Erdogan, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And people were kind of upset at this as a symbol. Um, so a lot of people from the neighborhood did not like this. They had a small protest. It was maybe 30 people, maybe 50 people. I have interviewed people who were there the first few days. It was not a big deal because we have a fairly strong elected government and very polarized country. And 
we and we have some protests. There's a lot of issues, but it, the, this one wasn't very big. But then this happened to the small press. It was met with overwhelming um, force, right? This is the famous sort of lady in red. Uh, she's actually a graduate student, uh, and this is sort of this picture outraged a lot of people. Why is the police sort of using this to obviously? Uh, not a threat to anyone, and that's just awful stuff. Pepper spray. Uh. Um, so people saw the prime minister, not even the mayor of Istanbul or mayor of Beyoğlu, where this park is, kind of wanting this as a sign of this. This is a later Economist cover. They were like, this. they saw this as a sign of growing authoritarianism. This is our prime minister made by the Economist into a sultan. This worries about growing authoritarianism. Uh, so people took to the streets. People took to the streets in fairly large numbers around the area after hearing of the sort of violent crackdown on a small protest. What happened next was pretty fascinating if you're a media scholar. So Turkish media broadcast networks are, well, basically hobbies and interest groups that are owned by very large conglomerates who make money by doing business with the government. So instead of independent media, you have this large corporate media conglomerates who, for whom the media is there to curry favor with the government. So rather than sort of just completely state-owned TV, which would be very obvious, you have fairly obviously there to um, get government contracts from other businesses the media owners have, right? Construction. Uh, energy. So what happened is as protests sort of broke, these large protests in the middle of the city, largest city in Turkey, largest most important square perhaps, and it's just growing because people are hearing this on social media. If you turned on television, on CNN Turkey you saw penguins. <laughs> on CNN International you saw the protests. I mean this is this incredible screenshot of the two side by side. You would turn on your local television, and I mean, this is middle of this. It's a very, very central place. It's probably the central place, and everybody. It's a very wide country. We have 50 to 60 percent internet penetration, and in Istanbul, it's probably 100 percent in the sense that everybody has a phone at least, uh, and most phones have texting. So everybody's hearing from this, and you turn on your TV, and it's penguins. That did not go well. So this did something else. People were really upset. Uh, and to, to Twitter, really, it was very Twitter-driven, and to streets. And Twitter and the penguins kind of became the symbols. These are both stencils. Uh, Occupy Gezi was the first hashtag. Um, the gas mask Twitter and the uh, penguins uprising. So, after multi-day clashes in the area, coordinated and spread almost solely on social media, the televisions for, I think, at least a day, they just kept... They weren't even saying bunch of terrorists in Gezi are doing vandals. They were just showing talk shows, cooking shows. It was pretty eerie to watch. And people had suspected how bad Turkish media had gotten. But having this happen in the middle of the biggest city really woke a lot of people up because there was so much independent confirmation from people like you and your friends who could go there and take the pictures and photograph it. So in this way, Turkey is this mix between 
what happens in a place like Occupy and what happens in a place like Egypt. It's neither, it's an elected government, right? So it's not Mubarak, it's not, we're not looking at an autocracy. But in terms of media, we're looking at a very authoritarian structure. So people, after, you know, days of outrage, people went and occupied the park. Large numbers of people. Again, the park had not been the most important thing on the planet to these people. It was a symbol. It became the symbol of government overreach, authoritarianism, media censorship. Um, it was a, it was not, it's not Central Park, you know, if you were trying to rebuild Central. It was a park that would have potentially been ignored and allowed to raise had it not been for the cycle. So Gezi got occupied, so I packed up my gear. Uh, and kind of decided that I couldn't really follow the NSA story as much as I would like. And this is my gear. Uh, so as you can see, that is my uh, bicycle helmet, tear gas canisters. That is my tear gas helmet. Although there was a big sort of, it's interesting, there was an ethic of not wearing it too much. People kind of just took the tear gas and it's awful stuff. But uh, I'm increasingly convinced tear gas is not useful for anything but dispersing peaceful assembly. Because people who want to do something anyway, they get the gas mask. And you get tear gas a couple of times and you realize it's awful, but you're not going to die. So it's not as big a deterrent. Uh, my recorder, my extra battery, sunscreen, which I still think I'm very statistically oriented. I think sunscreen was the biggest threat uh, protector uh, in terms of the odds. It was sunny. It was June. It was perfect weather. It was just beautiful. The government couldn't have picked the worst time to have the clashes because it was the perfect month for occupying that park. I don't think it rained for weeks. <coughs> so, and I went. And this is me there. Uh, and it was just, this, it was this really interesting place. So the context is we had 11-year reign by a single party, right? So AKP had been in power for 11 years. So there had, a generation had grown up not knowing much else. A very polarized country. Let nobody think they weren't popular. This isn't Egypt's Mubarak. When I went to Egypt after Mubarak had fallen, you really couldn't find anybody who defended him. You know, it was kind of like, yeah, good riddance. It was all over. I used to joke that maybe his dog didn't like him. It was just not. The country was polarized against him. Whereas in Turkey, AKP has a strong base. They have done a lot of things. Much of it I had agreed with, and you know, much of it very successful. We also have a crisis of politics. I'm not going into the Gezi bits too much because this is not a talk about Turkey, but because of the electoral system, uh, the Turkish parliamentary system is very unsuited to throwing up new parties. There's a 10% barrier to getting elected. So if you're a new party, if you get any vote, if you get votes under 10%, you get zero. So how are you going to start a new party that's first going to get 8%? So you can't have a situation like the German Greens where they could slowly build up. So ineffective opposition is locked in place. And this was designed by the 1980 coup military government, and AKP has, doesn't change it yet, well, because it really helps them. And so there's fears of growing outreach and authoritarianism. So this is the context. So what did I find? It was like a Smurf village. Yes, it was this beautiful, organized place. It was just, a, you know, tents everywhere. Um... Everything in the park they had arranged, organized, mostly social media driven, right? The news went through social media, mostly Twitter. Um, they, it was, they had a very nicely functioning kitchen. They fed tens of thousands of people every day, no problem. It was very clean. It was just, you know, I, I was like, this is, 
just embarrassingly clean because they kept sweeping and cleaning because they didn't want you know how these kinds of occupations get um, uh, smeared as dirty, awful places. And if you have ten thousand people in a sort of park, obviously there are problems. So they really took care of that. In the evenings, it would get become like a carnival because the people there were the occupiers and there were people who come visit in the evening because it was just this fun place. It was very uh, nice. But occasionally, Smurf Village was visited by Gargamel. If you guys know the cartoons, Gargamel is the Smurfs are these little cute blue people who live under the mushroom and Gargamel comes and eats them. So you would occasionally get tear gas in the place. I have some pictures of closer tear gas, but they're not as clear as this because when you can't breathe, you can't apparently take very good pictures. You also, it just doesn't show as well. Uh, but so occasionally, so I describe it as Woodstock meets Paris Commune. It was really like that. If there was no sort of um, tear gas, it was just lively. There were stuff going on. And people had felt like, finally, we can try to oppose the AKP government. There was music, and there was theater, and there was just people sort of finding politics. Because of this ineffective opposition, people had been really frustrated with politics, people finding politics. But there were barricades on all sides, um, you know, going down. If you know the area at all, I can from Taksim to the Gumusu area, like 14 huge barricades. Uh, so you had crazy stuff, right? This was uh, a Sufi dervish with a gas mask, of course. What else? And a pink skirt. What else, right? It was just this kind of crazy place. You know, if you want Dunash, that's what we call it. Uh, the other people mistakenly call it other things, it's dinner. I'm just joking. So you just had to have your gas mask. And it was, the overwhelming sense of it was a one no, many yeses. Now this is common to many social media field movements. I'm going to argue this is not a coincidence. What do I mean by one no, many yeses? In this particular picture, what you're seeing is the yellow flag is the Kurdish party. The red flag is the Turkish nationalist left. And that sign this guy is making is Turkish ultra-ultra-nationalist, right? Those three never, ever, ever come together. They are not at all, you know, friendly to each other. You know, Kurds and Turkish right-wing nationalists are not known to be the friendliest of people. But they're being tear-gassed and water-cannoned, and, you know, it makes for great friends. This one, no, many yeses kind of comes from, uh, the earliest I remember is the Zapatista movement, which... Interestingly, a lot of people trace to the internet field, uh, social media, not social media then, but internet field movements then. It, there's a long parenthesis. I will, actually, that's when I first came to this country. I, I went to this, I went to Chiapas. I was really interested in, is this really internet driven? I, I was uh, not yet, you know, an academic, but that's partly how I became. And it was this one no many yeses feeling was, you know, this kind of coalition building was very much there. Uh, although, uh, if you went to sort of the area, there was no internet because it was Chiapas, the sort of mountains in uh, southern Mexico. There wasn't even electricity, but there was an internet network outside that supported it. So one no many yeses, and I'm going to argue this is a structural feature that comes from the way we use social media. Now, this is a picture. It's a very, very telling picture. I love this picture because I just, this is sort of, they let me take the picture. Uh, on your, see, left, right, left, the tall lady is one of the best known transgender activists in the country. 
And this park is close to sort of what you might call the, the LGBT-friendly neighborhoods in Istanbul. And she was really like, she was forefront of some of the protests and laid, uh, uh, like, tried to stop on APC, sort of these armored vehicles. So really was highly respected. On the other side, right, I, did, I had this, I watched this conversation. So this lady, who was from the Kurdish Southeast Village, kind of goes to her and say, says, why have we never talked before? And so she's like, I don't know, we really should have talked before. And they have this conversation, which was really inflected because she's speaking with this really thick Kurdish accent. And he's speaking with the sort of Istanbul queer language. And these people would have never really discussed these things. And it was just, I watched them converse and hug and have this. And I was like, can I have this picture? And they're like, sure. So there we go. So also this, I mean, this is another thing of modern protests is this, there's the free rider question. Everybody says, why do people protest? Well, what if the protest itself is the benefit? It was such a fun place um, that, I mean, the, these people didn't feel like they were paying a price. They, it was more like, oh, the protest is great. And I think this is part of the modern protest too. But the costs were real. So as night fell, when police attacks became more likely, people started writing their blood type on their arms. So this isn't, you know, we're not talking, you know, that's why Woodstock meets Paris Commune. And I have, like, personally have seen people being rushed in stretchers after being hit on the head with tear gas canisters. Uh, total five people died. Thousands of injured by tear gas canisters. Um, I mean, it can go from to the head. It's a serious thing. I think tear gas is, um, it's not a non-lethal weapon. It's a very, very uh, harsh thing. So the... So when you interview the Gezi people, they all came back to growing authoritarianism, media censorship, and police brutality. Those were three themes that came. I interviewed 130-some people formally, and I spent a lot of time just there talking, talking, listening, talking, listening. So what was Internet's role in this? It was to break media censorship. It was to construct a counter-narrative, and it was log logistics and coordination. So, uh, break media censorship. At one point, somebody photoshopped penguins to the middle of the uh, uh, protest pictures, and the subtitle in Turkish was, like, come here, CNN, come here, CNN. They were trying to lure CNN into covering it. It was just like a lot of jokes about penguins and the censorship. Um, so, I watched this. On CNN, there was soccer on Twitter, there are pictures of people running down Turkey's main shopping streets, like our Fifth Avenue or the village, more like, being tear gassed. I mean, it's just, just incredible. Um, so there's penguin jokes all around, you know, um, penguins in Antarctica watching CNN <laughs> happening, and in Turkey we're just watching penguins. I actually brought, I brought a, uh, they have a Bansky, Banksy uh, inspired penguin throwing a flower. I, I brought a poster, I will maybe bring it after the talk. Social media was very important. People were really juggling their social networks because on, most people went to Twitter where they could control the conversation better, even though it's more public, than Facebook where there were a lot more family and relatives. I have heard this in many places. Like I heard this first Wisconsin Union protest where families were polarized around the area, so Facebook was dangerous. So you went to Twitter to discuss it where you know, not all your aunts were on there and following you. They didn't really know you. So Ironically, Twitter became uh, more central, even though it was more public. 
And I mean, I think this is really telling. People were just sort of seeing the the blue bird became this symbol of freedom, and people trusted it more. Complicated reasons, uh, because they trusted not to uh, turn over users to uh, Turkish government more, and probably justified. So protest coordination. For the most part, internet worked. When it didn't work, a lot of local businesses turned open their Wi-Fi. A lot of people had these internet modems in Turkey. It's a very common thing, so there was a lot of, you know, sort of just modems. People texted others who then tweeted for them. Or they would walk to a place with the internet. So you would take a picture and then run away. So a common thing, I mean, people sometimes think people don't coordinate protests on Twitter. I assure you, in this case, they did. You know, and I've seen this. People would run to the front lines, you know, fight, get gas, whatever, come back, turn on their phone, check what else was happening. And sometimes when I was in the middle of the park, somebody would ask me, what's going on? You know, I would get a tweet asking from somebody outside the country asking what's going on. I'm like, I have no idea. Look on Twitter because I'm on the ground. I have no, you know, sort of um, aerial view of the place. When I follow something on Twitter, I have this sort of above the ground view. Andy Carmen talks about that too. Like the most he confused about a protest in Egypt when it was when he got caught in one. So if you're in the middle of one, it's really hard to see. But once you go on social media, you start seeing. Now, of course, there was a lot of misinformation and dis disinformation on social media, but people kept, people developed very quickly new literacies. They started learning, you know, who to trust, who not to trust. There were some citizen journalism outlets. Uh, one of them is great. Uh, I will write a paper about them, 140 journals. There's just 140 journals on Twitter. And they started never tweeting anything without a picture. They're only, they only tweeted citizen journalist reports with a picture so that it could be verified and people learn how to verify and look at you know all these things. It was just this amazing uh, protest. Now why didn't the Turkish government turn off Twitter? Um, lots of reasons but it would not have been to their advantage to do so. I think that it was not just good-hearted, I think it was wise of them because you will get a lot of pushback for that. The narrative construction, this is the second thing internet did. It was very youth and internet culture, very humor oriented. The humor was display and gaze. Once again, I think this kind of sort of cultural protest doesn't suffer from the free rider problem because everybody who I talked to who was there said they come here as soon as they get off from work or when they can because it was such a great place to be, even, you know, even after the three tier guys. Again, obviously, if you were being shot at, you would have the same problem. But we're talking about a context in which, uh, more like the Western Europe or US, that you're less likely to get shot at in this particular context. There was almost no leadership. There, it, it's complicated, but they did form a solidarity platform. I followed them, I went to their meetings, I interviewed some of these people, and I saw how it happened. I was there. so. Most of the time, I mean, it was 130-some organizations. They didn't really lead the protest as much as they kind of tried to be a coordinating thing of sorts. But with 140 organizations, you can imagine, a lot of it was just ad hoc coordinated. They could do this, again, partly because of social media. Uh, so Gezi was dispersed. 
after a couple of weeks, uh, exactly, I don't know how many days, I think 18 or 19 days, I should look at my calendar again. It was brutally dispersed because the government had had enough. And then it moved to, what it moved to is neighborhood forums. Their neighborhood forums are, um, I went and uh, studied them too. The, they moved to parks and neighborhoods where people go and try to talk about what to do next. But here's the interesting thing for me, and this is sort of where I get into the theoretical part. When it broke out, the government had a couple of ways of dealing with it. One of them was, um, let him have the park. It's a park, right? It's a little park. Don't build Ottoman barrack replica. I mean, there was no... There are certain things in Turkey that have huge social religious significance. This replica of an Ottoman barrack had been unthought of before they proposed it. So there was no movement saying, let's build a shopping mall, hotel... Barrack. <laughs> I mean, it's just my. You could have. They would have. They could have said, "Okay." Uh, they could have tried to uh, better negotiate with the protesters, and there was some negotiation, but it was complicated uh, for reasons I'll get into. But they mostly decided that it was not a threat to them. They decided to treat the protesters, and I think you know the way, say the, the first Bush, uh, sorry, second Bush administration treated the anti-war Iraq protests. It's just a focus group. And I think that it's the way Occupy was kind of treated, which is not that big a deal. There's a practical issue. So I think increasingly governments are treating such protests as not a big threat. And I think they have a reason to do so, which is what I'm going to try to get into. Uh, so to understand impact, let, let's look at capacity building and then go from there. So capacity building is, this is, um, look at capacity, not outputs as a variable. So if you want to look at human development, this comes from human development. If you want to look at human development, look at literacy, not GDP. GDP is an output. Instead, look at things that are, you know, what can people do? Like literacy is something that empowers people to do things. Whereas GDP is just the output. And sort of this focus to capacity uh, is pretty useful in development, so developmental economics. So internet, and I know I have a lot of words there, but this is kind of where I'm going with this theoretically. I think internet's impressive capacity building renders some other forms of capacity building less useful. But by not building other forms of capacity building, because you can take certain shortcuts, you then hit certain walls. I know a lot of words because I put I share my slides, so I put the words there uh, of what I'm sort of thinking through because not everybody's going to watch this. So conceptually, I'm not going to focus on online, offline. To understand this, you have to kind of blur that and see how it's one ecology. And also, I'm looking more at the post-citizenship protests. So it's a different game if it's in Egypt or in China where they may shoot at you. And it's a different game if it's Occupy M15. I'm looking more at the post-citizenship protests, not the ones where they were, the people were just not even uh, recognized as citizens and they were uh, fighting for that. So citizenship, post-citizenship protests is a common distinction in um, social movement research. So what do protests need? They need resources. And they need the political opportunity, the political uh, opening, right? So what does Internet do? It enables lower, much lower barriers of necessary resources for protest. So the Gezi protest 
was not pre-prepared, was not pre-planned. Nobody knew it was going to happen. It just blew up. January 25 in Egypt, there was a Facebook page. And there was a Facebook page. I mean, <laughs> the people in January 25, 2010, um, there was a protest. It's actually their annual protest. And there was like 150 people and 3,000 police. So, you know, how, you know how that goes. So you, we're increasingly seeing protests that can be called with much less resources. Let me skip this. So what do protests do? This, the first was what do protests need? What do they do? They grab attention. Protests are a means of grabbing attention. They promote social interaction. They reveal information. And then they signal capacity. And that's where I'm going to sort of go to the signaling of capacity. So my thesis is that internet protests don't signal the same way. They don't signal the same way as I'm going to argue. March on Washington, you know, 1963, or March on Washington you know, by the Civil Rights Movement is not the same thing as March on Washington or New York by the anti-war movement. It does signal something different. So attention capacity. The capacity that Internet brings for attention, what do we win, what do we lose? We, lo we win the ability to gain attention without media being the intermediary. If traditional media shuts you out, it used to be you're shut out, you're done. Now you can get attention, like in Gizi, even if all of traditional media shuts you out, you can get attention. It was a striking case. I mean, it was completely shut out of mainstream media. Didn't matter. In Tunisia, in 2009, there was a protest in Gafsa, a little mining town, very similar to the protest two years later in Sidi Bouzid, which sparked the whole thing. In 2009, the Ben Ali regime cordoned off the place throughout the journalists, waited it out. That was it. In 2009, there were 22,000 Facebook users in Tunisia. In 2011, there were more than a million. He tried the same thing with the Sidi Bouzid. It did not work. So this, there's this mass media bypass. But when you used to not bypass the media, media attention meant something else. It signaled elite dissent and buy-in. When Nixon said, if I lost Walter Cronkite, I lost Middle America in reference to the, civil, uh, the, the Vietnam War movement, he meant that if I have lost media to this cause, if I lost media elites, it signaled elite dissension. Also, it meant since media had all the singular focus, people started hearing a different narrative. So what we have lost is for a movement to dominate the narrative in a particular way. So previously, if you didn't have media cooperation, you might have been stuck and no way to get around it. But if you started getting more sympathetic ear from the media, it got you a lot. Now, you're kind of stuck in the middle. You can get a lot of attention, but you can never dominate the narrative the way a movement may sometimes need to dominate the narrative. There's no way of getting away from polarized narratives. So we want, um, oops, sorry. So we have increased tactical capacity to grab attention. We have increased attention in an environment where dominance of narrative is impossible. So social for social movements, there's a win and a loss. And you see where I'm going with this, right? So the capacity, the particular way that attention capacity comes with the internet comes with a loss. So let's move to the second one. I think for this one, it's a win for social movements. 
there's a lot more opportunity for social interaction. Protests traditionally and by research matter most because people meet people like them. People feel empowered. People have fr find friends. And I think with the internet and offline, it's internet is a homophily machine, right? You want people like you, you can find it. The only downside might be now it doesn't just work for movements you like, right? Anti-vaccination movement, that's where they clump. Uh, East, you know, we, we go yay to Egypt activists and we go boo to anti-vaccine, you know, uh, activists. But both of them found each other kind of very similar protests and offline. You know, it's the same homophily mechanism. Uh, Tea Party and Tax Day 2010, it's where a lot of them found each other. So protests, both online and offline, this is their social interaction. So I think for social movements, it's a global win. On the other hand, it means there's going to be a lot more social movements. Because if you want a social movement, you will find people like you. So my, win much, much more, many more stronger movements. Lost much, much more, many more stronger movements. In this one, I think we're there. So information revelation. This is the third capacity. Pluralistic ignorance is the feeling you have when you're thinking she's gone on for too long, but you think you're the only one who thinks that. right? And But if everybody thinks I've gone on for too long, and everybody's kind of thinking it to themselves. And luckily, there's no hashtag for this thing, and everybody doesn't start going, she's going on too long, and everybody's like, all right, be quiet already. right? So that would break pluralistic ignorance. Pluralistic ignorance is the notion where you feel like I'm the only one because you have some private information others don't know. I think for that, internet is great. You know, the Facebook page, we are all Halitzite in January 25, where Gezig allowed people to see that there were a lot of others like them, and I think this can be both online and offline. See how I'm not separating online and offline. I think currently both protests you can have. So win is that I think pluralistic ignorance as a ruler, ruling mechanism, it was in the Arab Spring countries, is on the way out. If your control depends on, if your authority depends on controlling very tight, the, the public sphere very tightly, that's just not going to work as well unless you want to remain North Korea. And I know some people might say China, and I will argue it doesn't even work the way you think there. I mean, there's a lot of criticism of the government online. Now, the fourth capacity. What, why, do, why do governments care about protests? Why do they care about if a million people get on the street? Why don't they just say it's just a focus group? Why didn't they do that before? Why are we seeing this now? My argument here is that before, because you couldn't have easy way to organize protests, if you got a million people to Washington, D.C., you weren't just signaling a million people. You were signaling, I have infrastructure. I have will. I've put in a lot of work, and I have this organizational infrastructural capacity to be here, to represent, to negotiate. Whereas now, I don't think it signals the same thing. So this is starting. And this is what sort of... Um, ecology people, the animals do this, they just jump up in the middle of the bush, right? Now, why the heck would you just jump up? You know, are you saying, hey, lion, hey, tiger, me, me, eat me? No, that, I mean, that's dumb, right? I mean, this is common in many animals. One proposed explanation is that you're signaling by jumping, you're signaling how strong you are. So you're signaling an ability to run. I mean, you're obviously not even going to jump up and away from the lion because you have no wings. So the jumping ability is not important. The muscularity implied by the jumping is what is going to supposed to tell the lion to say, go eat that other guy. Right? So you can't catch me, right? 
But what if the sky had springs? Internet brings you these springs for protest organization. It acts as it builds, it encourages building certain capacities in a certain way, and then you don't get the beneficial side effect that you get in the second step. So all files protest signal this capacity to organize. Now it only signals an aggrieved group, and the governments have learned that one way to ignore aggrieved groups is to ignore them. And if they're not really signaling any organizational capacity, they're done. So, so the March on Washington and the anti-war protests, see, this is why I'm saying don't look at the outputs. People, social movement scholars sometimes say, a million people showed up, did something happen? A million people showed up, did something happen? I think that's the wrong comparison. The same, it's not the same thing if a million show up, people show up then. And this is the New York January, uh, the February 15 protests uh, that happened in New York. I was there. There was a lot of people. I thought, wow, can they really ignore this? They can, because why not? It doesn't signal. Because of the way it was organized and run, it did not signal the kind of threat a modern government is afraid of, electoral threat, losing office threat, you know, the kind of threats that... Um... Now, I also want to argue, I am not making what economists call a cheap talk argument, where, you know, talk is cheap, it doesn't signal anything, because a lot of the protests do have real costs. I mean, people in Gezi, they're being shot at, you know, it's not, you know, they're being shot tear gas canisters. There, there, even if there are costs, the cost doesn't necessarily signal capacity to hurt the government in a way it cares. So it's not because people are afraid or you know unwilling. So I think slacktivism completely misses the point because it concentrates at the cost. But look at it by saying you know, if you just post something online, it's easy. That doesn't signal cost. Look at Ai Weiwei, he's just posting online. How easy, right? But he's signaling a capacity to dissent under really harsh conditions, even though he's just typing. So the act of typing, whether it's online or offline, is not the right metric for uh, whether something is there. So I've coined network internalities. If anybody have a better term, this is a work in progress. Capacity building that comes through network and infrastructure building. That has a typo in there because I type in Turkish. So um, it doesn't catch my typos. And network internalities for social media field protests are weaker. That you have a local optima, let's go protest, which you can do, that sets you up for the later uh, thing you might, you can't climb higher, you get stuck there. And there's a difference on the left and the right because there's a long cultural tradition that the left has been dealing with, that social media is now allowing it to not deal with, in which, so this goes back to the 60s, in which the left has become left-inspired, let's say. Left-inspired protests have become wary of leadership, representation, delegation. There are many, many tensions. If you see studies of Occupy, they were not going to have spokespeople. They were not going to delegate. I saw the same thing happen in Gezi, which is striking, because in Turkey you never have, you know, you, you don't have it. But by sidestepping those, social media is allowing them to sidestep tensions around how do you delegate, how do you negotiate, how do you represent, because they can just organize things online, the protest coordination. You, know, you can serve 10,000 people food every day without electing a leadership or having an authority, because you can just do this. In the next step, though, when government comes to try to negotiate, I've seen this in Gezi, the negotiations were this huge 
disruption to the Gezi side because they couldn't internally deal with how do we negotiate? How, what do we negotiate for? And my argument is this is why many movements are stuck at no. This is why social media field process tend to be this one no, many yeses. Because whatever coalesced the original protest is the only thing that has been kind of negotiated because you showed up. Social media allows them to sidestep creating the network internalities that would allow them to actually figure out where to go from there. So they keep fizzling out, M15. Now you can see, I'm not making just an internet argument, right? There's this huge cultural tradition in the left of trying not to have representation. Whereas if you look at the Tea Party, there's a great paper out in, um, I will tweet it out, there's a great paper out in uh, QJE that looks at how the Tea Party protest became the center for what I would call capacity building to challenge primaries. But the Occupy people were like, we're not going to challenge primaries because that would mean electing people and they weren't going to elect people. So this isn't happening in a vacuum. This is happening in a multi-decade cultural shift in the left that starts with the 60s. So to sum up, lots of words which I'm not going to read. But, but see, my argument is that capacity building, looking at the process of capacities rather than outputs, how many people show up, helps explain why we have this repeated cycle. When it was just the Arab Spring, I thought it's Middle East, you know, Egypt, so autocracies. When I saw it in Spain, I thought, okay, I love Spain. I love, you know, my Spanish friends, but, you know, Spain. So I thought maybe they just can't sort of organize this. And then Italy, and then Greece, and then UK riots, and then Occupy. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, they keep having the same pattern. And I was trying to get at this analytically. Now, and when I saw this happen in my own country where there had never been a spontaneous protest, you just don't have, you, you have them all top down. You have them all organized. And so very common things to Gezi protests that I had seen elsewhere, I thought, okay, social media here is part of what's driving the similarity. It was sort of this analytic nail in the coffin of why we have these boom-bust cycles. Okay, I know lots of words and talks, but uh, I'm very happy to just sort of thinking this through, questions, comments, feedback, criticisms, very welcome. And Amar left for class, so I'm, I'm moderating my own. <laughs> yes? Yeah, so you talked about the important role of Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, did other uh, social media platforms play a role as well? Because well, I, yes, I, they did. Yeah, because I remember it was following like the protests on WordPress or Bamboozer. There was like, a lot. So right. Twitter was the key because the protest was very mobile. And because this is Istanbul, a lot of people had smartphones and the people learned how to text via Twitter. And also Twitter was very important because these things have... Um, cameras. This is what, you know, the network individualism theory. You have a camera, you have it with you all times in your network, right? So it was perfect platform for it. Also, the Twitter gained the user's trust. Facebook was also important for sort of longer conversations and conversations among families and friends. Um, and there's Tumblr played. People started collecting pictures, humor. There was a lot of that. Uh, there was some live streaming. So Bamboozer came, people learned how to use stream, and uh, Bamboozer's blocked in Turkey. Uh, it's not political. It's, it started because of um, soccer games that were being, soccer games are licensed, so they, people were broadcasting them. Um, but uh, I would say most people I talked to said they relied mainly on Twitter because they trusted it, 
uh, in terms of vis-a-vis the Turkish government. And they also saw it was this good combination. You didn't want, you wanted something lighter weight. Uh, there's a lot of blogging, there's a lot of discussion. So, but it was, uh, if, if there was a t- Twitter-led, you know, Twitter-fueled revolution, to, it's not a revolution, but uh, let's say protest or uprising, this was really it. In Egypt, um, when all this was happening, Twitter was a couple of percent of the population. It was still key. It was a key bridge. Twitter played a role from Egypt to the rest of the world. It was very important. Here, in Egypt, in the January 25 protests, Twitter wasn't used as much among the activists. Here, it was used so much among the people. It was the way that people talked to each other. So it was, also, it was a horizontal tool as well as a bridge. But if you look at sort of Turkish disoccupied tweets, not that many in English. Because unlike Egypt, Turkey is not a client state. We don't really need to you know, appeal to U.S. to do something, whereas Egyptians had a very rational reason to appeal to the rest of the world. It's not a client state. Tur- I mean, Turkey is not a client state. Second thing is Turks don't as well speak English. The third thing is we don't really, like, the hashtag got dropped very quickly. So from the outside, it looks like, and this is my sort of caution against big data analytics of this stuff, I don't think you can get at how significant Twitter was to this whole thing if you're looking at through classic big data methods like hashtags because people had no, outside of hashtag wars, they weren't trying to get at it that way. Given that the uh, networked basis of this gives rise to, um, on the left, inability to carry through with negotiations and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, coming up with firm positions and uh, taking the effective political action of delegation and so forth in order, and representation, um, in order to achieve aims, what, uh, how many cycles are we going to go through before, and what would you do? Is it possible to have a hybrid? Uh, I mean, obviously, there are many, many problems with this. You now I'm talking like less as a scholar. There are many problems with delegation. You know, they sell you out. There's all sorts of things. There's a moment where Wael Gonim uh, recounts in his book about. So they figured out he was the administrator of the We Are All Halitzite website, right? They finally figured it out, but he's in jail. So they whisk him to the general's office, and they're like, so, Wael, what will it take to end this, right? It's the classic move. You try to buy off or scare the protest leader. And he's like, dude, I couldn't end this if I wanted to. Like, I have no representational power to sell out. So, I mean, even if they could sort of coerce him, he couldn't sell out because he was not in a position to sell out. So on the one hand, you know, given the history of Todd Gitlin's book on, uh, on making of the left is a very good example of sort of spokespeople unmaking the movement with media focus on, you know, the crazies and the fridge. So there's all these issues. I, so I'm not saying that this is great. But on the other hand, this is what happened in Gezi. And I, I can see, you know, versions of it happening elsewhere. The government said, all right, let's negotiate. At some point, they decided they were going to negotiate. So first, who the heck do you send? So they sent the people from like very traditional NGOs who'd been involved from the beginning. They were great people, nice people. Many of them, I've interviewed, talked to them. But they had no representational capacity. So they went and listened to the prime minister. And the prime minister was kind of, and that side, they tried this twice. They were really frustrated. They said, even if we give them everything or nothing, this is not going to change because who do we negotiate with? So they were, I mean, I kind of, I don't approve of many things the government did, but I think they were genuinely frustrated 
at not finding a partner to which they could say, if we gave you the Gezi Park and fired the chief of police and seven things. I mean, I'm not, there just wasn't there there. So the, after the negotiations, which went more like, people went and listened to the prime minister and they sort of spoke. There were some demands, but it wasn't even clear like, uh, how it would work. They came back to the park. So it's now like 3 or 4 a.m. They didn't even come back. They, they were in Ankara, so there was a live feed. So they try to explain what had happened. People are like confused. Do we go? Do we stay? Do we do this? There was no way to deal with it, and the government's watching this. And then the next day, they try to create these little forums that they wouldn't talk, but I mean, how are the little forums going to discuss or decide if they're okay or not? And then at one point, some parts decide, okay, we'll take this and sort of unpack and go. And then there's another part that says, we're not going to unpack. And the government's looking at it and says, nothing we do. They just told us they were going to unpack. They're getting frustrated. Now, people sometimes look to things like the Zapatista movement saying, oh, look, they, it was all consensus. And let me say two things. One, I went there to watch that process. It was a very, um, not 21st century or 20th century model of consensus. You're in the same village your whole life with the same 100 people. And by consensus, you mean a lot of social pressure. Right, so it's not like, and they voted for, you know, they voted when they couldn't agree, the Zapatistas voted. I don't know who the heck still keeps saying they did they, when they couldn't agree, and they often came to a consensus through social pressure. Social pressure does not work in the modern city where people can just show up and say what they want. So where will we go with this? I, I mean, I have lots of wishes, but it can't just be technology. There has to be this recognition on left-inspired movements that if you cannot ever delegate or negotiate, then you can be stuck at the snow. And if that's where everybody wants to be stuck at, I guess we're stuck there. Um, but I think that explains the right isn't like that. And I think both in Europe and both in the U.S., we had these huge left-inspired protests. And yet, it's the right that is using social media to clump, organize, and make really significant strides. In the U.S., they have blocked one president's first-term agenda, mostly, and they're derailing the second. In Europe, they're, getting, they're clumping together and getting elected into the European Parliament. And meanwhile, you have indignados in Spain, where there's you know, 20, 30, 40% unemployment, depending on the age group, and they cannot get their act together or do something, and have an impact. It's really, I don't think you can explain this just, you know, it's, it's this feeling of cultural existing trends and not having to deal with it because social media allows you to sidestep some of those tensions. And, you know, the big visible protests are left, the big visible gains are right wing, partly because of the cultural element to all this. Um, you mentioned that there are about 150 different social groups uh, involved in the movement. Um, so, if you look at the history mm -hmm. of and the culture that and the usage of social media, uh, and based on the interviews, what did you find the relationship between how they okay. organized right, so, this protest versus how they were doing so the 150 groups had a name. They did not represent the people on the ground. So I would like go to the meeting of these groups, and there will be 150 groups represented on paper, there will be 13 people. 
I mean, obviously. And the movements were just kind of, they, they formed the so-called leadership, the solidarity, because they existed. If you talk to the people, many, many, many people said, I am not here as member of a movement. There were some people on the ground who were members of movements, had experience, they were important, you know, and they played very important roles. But overall, the protest was largely driven by, participated by, and was kind of this outpouring of people who had not been members of traditional NGOs. So the traditional NGOs were really, really left behind. They had no capacity to lead. They didn't even understand. They kind of came onto the scene last time. And this was the first time in Turkey. Like when the Arab Spring happened uh, and sort of the January 25 happened, a couple of months later, we had a huge protest in Kurdish area, Diyarbakir. So people started calling me and saying, you know, Kurdish Spring, I'm like, well, a million people in Diyarbakir, that's a different thing because they're organized. I mean, it's, there's a institutional, there's a counterstructure there. There's a group, there's a political party. So we always had a million people show up. There was nothing new to that. Gezi was different in that traditional organizations did not create, did not really lead, were constantly chasing behind it. And they may have played a certain role because journals kind of know to turn to them. But I don't think organizational capacity-wise, besides being a little more um, experienced in running the camp itself, because they were a little more used to running things, they weren't really in the front of the politics of this. So the number sounds impressive, but you go to their actual meetings and, you know, it's just, it's dead. It's not, the, 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 the models don't fit. And first of all, I'm from Turkey, and I was one of these protesters in Ankara. I was tear gassed three times. Uh, it tastes good. <laughs> I recommend all of you guys. It tastes revolution. Uh, my question is, uh, how can we orient uh, this whole approach towards the, uh, to be an alternative to classic uh, opposition structure in Turkey? Uh, I'm asking that because uh, the opposition uh, in Turkey, the classic opposition parties in Turkey, do not represent the young people, do not uh, yeah. represent the uh, democratic-based people in Turkey. Uh, can, uh, I'm asking you this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we have a huge crisis of representation in Turkish opposition. So this is, I mean, this is part of my substantive findings about the protest itself. So the traditional parties, as I said, they're kind of legacy opposition parties. Their views are not very representative of the kind of views I found on the ground. There's a young generation uh, very much used to sort of uh, pluralism, for example. Like the Kurd traditional Turkish parties are not very big on pluralism. There's the sort of social democrats, but they're kind of social democrat nationalists, and they're very much like my way or highway in their worldview. Um, the right wing, kind of like that. AKP started out with a more pluralistic rhetoric, but is increasingly polarized. So there's no, for example, political party that represented the live and let live ethic I found among the Gizzi protesters. It was very much live, let live, let people come. For example, there was no polarization around, say, an issue like should someone wear the headscarf or not? They were like, if they want to, they should. If they don't want to, they shouldn't, right? You know how you talk to a lot of young people and they talk, you talk about gay marriage and you're, they're just shrugging? 
You know, it's kind of like that. There's a lot of shrugging of old-style Turkish politics. Say the tur- headscarf was not a big deal. But they're not represented in parliament in any political party. And I think the electoral system blocks the new parties being formed because of the 10% barrier. Now, also, though, these people don't necessarily want an institutional representation because they, too, have kind of acquired this cultural allergy to representation because they look at representational electoral politics and they see corruption and non-representation. And I think this is just part of the broader problem. There, you know, we've got sort of this global problem. I wish I had an answer. Uh, yes, do you? <laughs> and in the community that we should do something. Yes, they, yeah, there, people wanted to... There's a trend to... in the tur- Turkish community that... And these people, uh, did government get into the line, and uh, these people did get government, uh, media into the line, uh, and it would be an alternative. It, it must... Well, as I said, some way right. so for politicians, I mean, this is very clear, right? In a sort of country in which you have some sort of electoral system, even if not a perfect one, the thing that motivates them is losing their office. And if you are not threatening that capacity, at some point they are going to successfully ignore you. That is just, I, I don't really have what they should do as my answer, but that's just sort of, if you look at it, that's where the weak point of the system is. And in different countries, it plays out differently. In the U.S., it's the primaries that are more open. In the U.S., it's, you know, sort of, uh, in Europe, it's the parliamentary elections, depending on your country. But American model, because that's working really well. Oh, that's so well. You had your hand up for a while. Yeah, I know. That's great. I know. Is our good, are, are we, like, defaulted yet? Yeah. Uh, uh, how many uh, tele- telephone company? Uh, offer the how many uh, companies offer the internet facilities in uh, Turkey? Um, okay, so this is how it works. The main internet comes through a Turkish Ministry of in Communication. So the backbone goes through one, mm-hmm. and then it's sold to companies who can sell it. And the cell phone networks kind of work the same way. So there's this government that builds the infrastructure, which means if surveillance is your concern, you can just assume surveillance. But I would like to argue that as much as we worry about surveillance and protests, when there's like tens of thousands of people in the street and millions and millions of them tweeting or saying something, I mean, once again, it's not the same concern. Um, So the phone companies, there's at least three or four major ones and lots of small ones. And it's a fairly wired country. So unlike Egypt, which I thought, okay, it's not as wired, it's not as, so it was a different case. It's probably more wired than the U.S., which nowadays, you know, it's not, people have gotten used to it. U.S. infrastructure isn't that great. Uh, It's not as wired as, say, Korea or places like that, but especially the urban big cities. I don't know if you guys have been to Istanbul. Again, wonderful city. I, you know, going there is great. I recommend it. But be prepared for the time and traffic. So what do Turks do? They always use their cell phones to say, I'm, I'll be late. I'll be late. You can just sort of write a macro that says, I'll be late, because you'll be late. So you all, a lot of people need cell phones to coordinate everything anyway. All right? So that's partly why a lot of people have smartphones. It's a lifesaver given 
the urban madness that you know we live in. Actually, you, I, I'm here, but I think yeah, we have time. So yes, yeah. yeah. Actually, you know, I want to supplement you know two points here in this regard. Uh, in India, we had two successful models. So one is that you know the protest against the Delhi rape case. Uh, I hope you would have uh, you know uh, uh, heard about it. Uh, very huge success, you know, it got, and it is uh, mainly driven by Facebook and uh, Twitter mm -hmm. like this. And uh, secondly, there was another movement uh, which was uh, led by Mr. Anna Azare that was against corruption. So again, the electronic media, particularly the, the, the Twitter and the Facebook, uh, the, because the youngsters, everybody, they involved in this uh, protest. And they were able to organize so many people, you know, millions organized in, uh, in Delhi. And, uh, and it spread to the whole of the country. And this is what happened. Uh, I am only wondering, you know, how this can be harnessed uh, to regulate or to, you know, consolidate this effect, as you have, you know, asked, you know. These are all sporadic instances. So sometimes it erupts, sometimes it disappears, isn't it? So how to give it a shape and how, it, how to harness this as uh, one single force to regulate the, the governmental staff, you know, the functioning. So this is one uh, great promise I see with the help of the digital, you know, uh, the technology. This is one thing. At the same time, a word of caution, uh, a bad model happened in India, that mm -hmm. is uh, uh, the Northeast, uh, uh, the people, uh, they, uh, they work in different uh, areas in India. There was a rumor that they have been, they have been harassed, they have been killed, all those things, and right. immediately this rumor got spread everywhere with yeah. the help of SMS, Twitter, everywhere. Great panic and all of a night within the same night right. everybody it's wanted the, to go back to northeast. It's the same Huge dynamic. Problem. I mean, yeah. this is people forget about this, but the biggest act of sort of non-state terrorism since 9/11 happened in Iraq because of a YouTube video. Uh, in um, so there was there's a case in uh, Mosul. There was this um, near Mosul, the, the Kurdish areas, but there's a small group called Yazidis who are very sort of closed. Uh, complicated reasons, but let's just say that the deity they worship has, sounds the same, has the same name as God and Islam, so that does not make for great relations um, in that area. So a girl had run away, a Yazidi girl had run away with a Sunni boy, and this was like a big no-no in that community, very insular, also very protective and scared. So they dragged, they found the girl, they dragged her back, and they, it was awful, stoned her to death. But even, you know, just awful enough, people captured it on their video, the people who did it, and posted it on YouTube. And then this got out, and this created the sort of cycle of outrage, and then back then there was Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and then used the cycle of outrage for car bombs, which killed almost a thousand people, which is an enormous number if you think about size of the... So, I, I mean, this is my... This, I've been saying this, is the internet good or bad? Yes. I mean, uh, if you want to get out a certain piece of information that they're trying to keep you from getting out, it works like wildfire, but it also works for wildfire if that piece of information is going to create, really have destructive effects. Jeff, your hand up. Um, do you sort of see protests as not being effective in any form anymore? I mean, is no, there some, some of sort of not. number? No, no, that, absolutely not. Is it sort of the bar has been raised no, higher, no. like a million people no longer no. matters? Do you now need no. 10 million? No, okay, so being, here's the thing, here's the thing. I think, of course, numbers still matter greatly. That's why when the second round of Egyptian protests, there was this battle of numbers, who has more people out. But it depends on what it's signaling. 
right? So that's my key thing is that the number itself has become a misleading measure. And in, repress in this sort of citizenship protest in repressive societies, I think it matters greatly still. Because if in China you got a million people, that means something different, right? Because uh, it signals a very, very different uh, intention and capacity than getting a million people. So I'm talking mostly in sort of the post-citizenship movements in uh, freer countries. And I think in those cases, unless there's reason to think it signals something else, the governments have learned to figure out that it doesn't signal much except when it does signal something. And that's why that Tea Party study is very interesting. So they controlled the variation by looking at where it had rained and it had not. This is a great paper. It's, I think it's called Do Protest Matter, Case Study of Tea Party. Uh, so they looked at places where the Tea Party tax day protests in 2010 had kind of fizzled out because it had rained compared with places it did not rain. This is random variation, right? Unless you think rain is correlated with some politics. It's probably not. <laughs> The places that had bigger protests because of no rain had bigger political impacts and also had the existing incumbents in those districts shifted to the right because they saw a potential primary challenge. Right? Uh, so in that case, if the protest is signaling, I, the very thing that elected officials fear, which is losing their seat, it can absolutely have an impact, but the protest, so I am saying think of protest as performative of a signal. And if your performance says, here we are and then we're going to go home and we don't believe in elections, so we're not going to vote, then just think game theoretically. A government can very well say, okay, it can just wait out till you get too cold in Zuccotti and then throw you out, right? Uh, whereas if it signals, we are here. And we are going to, you know, organize and challenge you wherever it is that is your weak point. Then it can signal something else. So I'm just saying don't look at protests as the classic output measures. How many people showed up? Was it big? Was it not? Uh, look at what is it signaling? I mean, sort of get more game theoretic look to it. Point of view from from Turkey and, and um, our point of view because I think in the um, in, in Turkey or even in even in Egypt you have some recognized you, you, you have an object you know to take a park or to move move Iraq but what happened in Spain is it's quite difficult to know what they wanted because um, you know once uh, the sound of the upper class that they they they, they thought that. Uh, and the world was unhappy for them because the, the new world, the globalization, uh, means that you know uh, now they are not easy to, to find a job for the whole of your life uh, without evaluations, as happens uh, usually in Spain and in France. You are civil servant, so you get a job for the whole mm -hmm. of your life, and it was uh, it was unhappy, and uh, they was unhappy with the capitalism system, mm -hmm. but. Uh, uh, they said, what, uh, and the opposite, what is the Venezuelan uh, system? So where uh, right. was afraid. And you know what happened? That after the mobilization won the Conservative Party, uh, more, uh, despite the mobilization was a, a left, uh, a progressive. Right. I, uh, I know exactly with, what you're so talking about. Yeah. There's a deep difference between that because we have, uh, we, we have not an objective 
in, in the Arab... Sure, but my argument is not finding the objective as part mm-hmm. of this process. So I completely agree that, I mean, every it's very different country to country. The question is, you know, if the capacity you were signaling is, I am going to, you know, through some negotiation internally, find at least a minimal objective, but I think increasingly there is this sort of desire among left-inspired movements not to do that. They want to have this, they want to have the objective remain vague. You know, what does Occupy want? They want to not answer it. So it's obviously every political coalition is full of compromise and messiness and vagueness. Uh, Here we can coordinate on the left without dealing with the compromise and the messiness. You see what I'm saying? So in that, that's the similarity. But of course, every single one plays out according to its own particular um, circumstance. And that's why I say Gezi for me was the analytic kind of nail in the coffin because the others were too disparate. And when I said, okay, one more than this. So I'm trying to draw out what's common. But if you ask me about each single one, you'll tell me lots of things about Spain that are different, that are from different from Turkey and People are looking like we need to wrap up. So, well, thank you, everyone, uh, for... Oh, thank you.